According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here for the purpose of growth. Turn to Matthew 18 as we get started. Matthew 18. Several parables in this chapter, several uh, sections, what we're dealing with. Get our slideshow up and running here. Episode 53 in the Harmony of the Gospels is titled, Disciples Contend About Greatness. It actually is a series of episodes, not a single episode, but a series of events which all center on the need for humility. Is that coming out okay? I guess so. Okay. And we're presently at our main point two, Matthew's events. The disciples are arguing about greatness. There were some subpoints there. I'm not going to go back into those this morning. Secondly, Christ illustrates with a child. He brings a child up, sets the child before them, and says you must become like this child, we had a couple of applications, actually three applications, and then a warning, which is where we are in our present study in verses 7 through 10. Christ warns about stumbling blocks. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. And this is what we will be dealing with once again here this morning. Actually, we're going to start chopping off pieces of uh, the anatomy as we uh, deal with verse 8. If your hand caught or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. So we'll have to deal with these amputational passages here this morning. Before we begin any of this, though, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that each believer priest is equipped with the Holy Spirit. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that we have this morning to assemble together and to receive instruction. Father, we ask for a clarity, for a clearness, Father, as you guide us in the truth. Help us to understand the application drawn in such passages where it seems pretty, uh, pretty violent, chopping off parts of the body and everything. Father, uh, help us to understand uh, what the impact of this passage is. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Yeah, one of the hardest passages we deal with because we are literal interpretationists. And we, uh, we want to translate things literally. I'm going to check one video setting here and make sure we're good. We're experimenting with a couple of other options with PowerPoint, and I'm not sure that I like those options. This is part of the problem. Let's do this. Better. 1024 by 768. Much better. And we're in clone mode. Projector likes clone mode. We're trying to do away with clone mode, but the projector likes it. Projector also likes 1024 by 768. 
right, so now this should look better, except I'm not in First Corinthians. There we go. Ah, much better. I knew when I saw those strips on the left and right, I said, that's a problem. All right, Christ warns about stumbling blocks. Woe to the world. It's a message of woe. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. Now, some subpoints here. I want to make sure that we're clear. There's other events coming up. We'll get to the 99. We'll get to the corporate discipline. We'll get to the 70 times 7. We'll talk about the settling of accounts with the slaves and the principles of gratitude. But let's give you the subpoints now under point C. Following three positive applications. Remember, become childlike, become humble, and receive such children. Those are our three imperatives, the three applications from the child illustration. Following three positive applications, Jesus delivers one very strong warning. The warning is summarized, do not cause such childlike brethren to stumble. And that stumbling can come about if you fail to apply any of those three positive commands. If we uh, fail to become childlike, we can become a stumbling block. If we fail to become humble, we can become a stumbling block. And if we fail to receive such children, we can become a stumbling block. And that's one area that we're going to deal with here this morning. The aorist active of scandalizo is the vocabulary. Scandalizo, it is where we get the English word scandalize. But we want to kind of be cautious because the idea of a modern scandal is a bit alien to this concept here. What Scandalizo deals with is causing a believer to trip, to trip a believer up. And it used to be, a long time ago, or maybe not so long ago, that a scandal could trip you up. Nowadays, it seems that a scandal only improves your situation, right? (laughs) As far as our... You know, the entertainment world, our culture is concerned, you know, a good scandal here and there is good for publicity. It's good for exalting your image and different things like that. What uh, What is this latest uh, steroid scandal going to do to the baseball players, for example? Well, uh, I noticed that uh, Mark McGuire was not elected to the Hall of Fame in his first year of eligibility. And it'll be interesting to see if they delay that again for another year and another year. And if, in fact, it becomes a permanent ban on the part of the voters Voting for uh, the Hall of Fame. You never know from scandal to scandal. I do hope, though, that we can stop thinking in terms of scandal and think more in terms of stumble. That's the better uh, English idiom, anyway, for scandalizo. That if you cause somebody to stumble, you're putting a stumbling block in their way. And um, there's plenty of them that are out there. As we're told here, they're inevitable. We'll talk about that again this morning. There are sufficient stumbling blocks just by virtue of the world in which we live. The world, the flesh, and the devil certainly have no shortage of stumbling blocks. We don't want to add unnecessarily to that list. There is divine discipline for either producing a stumbling block or even permitting a stumbling block. Maybe you didn't produce it, but you let it happen. All right? For not only producing a stumbling block, but permitting a stumbling block. Uh, It brings about divine discipline consequences. And I want you to notice, it is only comparable to an unthinkable alternative. I used that phrase last week. I'm repeating it again this morning. God's divine discipline. How do you compare God's divine discipline? What is it better than? What is it worse than? Right? How do you compare divine discipline? Say, well, it's better than a stick in the eye, or it's better than a 
whatever. We used to say, well, it's better than doing push-ups or sleeping in the mud. Okay? That's what we used to say in the army. Whatever bad duty we had to do in the army, it's fine. It was better than doing push-ups or sleeping in the mud. Right? Well, how do we compare God's divine discipline? It would be better, and we have the language of better. We have the comparative uh, adjective here. It would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That would be better than the divine discipline. Okay, So I'm titling this an unthinkable alternative. Because that's pretty extreme, don't you think? To, to strap a millstone around your neck with chains or whatever other attachments and then toss somebody overboard, they're, they're going to sink and they're going to sink fast. And unless we can spontaneously, you know, invoke evolution and, and somehow create gills, we're not going to breathe underwater. We're going to drown. And that's the reality of it. So it is only comparable to an unthinkable alternative. And I want you to keep that phrase in your mind because we come back to it again and again and again in the subsequent passages where we start talking about chopping off uh, body parts. Okay, Do we take those passages literally? No, we don't. No more so than we take this one literally. We're not strapping chains around somebody and throwing them overboard. We're saying that that, that unthinkable alternative is better, is preferable. So we draw consequences. We go ahead and we use an extreme, something not to be taken literally, in order to illustrate the seriousness of something. We do the same thing in modern English. A lot of languages use this idiom, this figure of speech. It's a euphemism, really. They, a lot of languages use that in order to make their point. Gross exaggeration. See, you say, I would never do that in a million years. Okay? Now, really, we're not going to be here for a million years, at least not in this humanity, not in this, uh, in this mortality. We've got, you know, 70 years, or if by strength, 80, and so forth. But we use that. We say, not in a million years. We take an extreme. We could say, not in a thousand years, but it's not as dramatic. Okay? It's still beyond our lifespan. I could say, not in a hundred years. I don't plan on reaching the age of 138. All right. I could say not in 100 years, but it's not nearly as dramatic as saying not in a million years. Okay. So we use the language of extreme, and that's what we have here, an unthinkable alternative. One way in which we might cause a childlike brother to stumble is to despise them. There's a clue here in the text down to verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. This is uh, just simply a, for instance, a one means by which we can cause a uh, childlike brother to stumble. But there are, of course, many ways we can cause someone to stumble. We have, oh, that's right. I meant to make sure we had a visible point three. Their angels in heaven is point C. Their angels in heaven. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Two things to observe is that there is a possessive adjective there. They're not just any angels. They are their angels. Angels associated with them. The key now is to understand, well, what is the nature of that association? How is it that the angels belong to these little ones? And uh, they're often thought of as guardian angels. 
that uh, we have here, we seem to have here a personal assignment of an angelic spirit being that is attached to a, a believer, in this case a child. And so there's the theory out there that, of course, every believer is assigned a guardian angel. You kind of combine this text with Hebrews 1 and you kind of throw a dash of speculation in there and uh, bake at 325 for an hour. And you have the, the doctrine of guardian angels. Okay, um, Or you could consider this in other ways. And rather than a personal bodyguard, how about a messenger? A messenger that uh, goes to the throne, even better than a guardian angel personal bodyguard, is a servant messenger with continuous access to God the Father. And that's, I believe, what's in view here because of the report that is then given to the Father. When you relate it over to Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, and we see the sons of God that have their regularly scheduled, appointed reports to the Father, by which they are instructed to report back concerning their observations of the human realm. And so uh, we find that to be consistent with what's going on here. And uh, we can combine those two passages with a dash of speculation and again bake at 325. And we can come up with some other angelology type conclusions. This was a quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown, the JFB um, commentary, which a lot of software applications use because it's so old it's out of copyright. Beyond that, though, it is actually quite excellent. It, it, it is a, a critical co uh, text commentary, and uh, Jameson particularly was an amazing scholar. All right. Um, a difficult verse, but perhaps the following may be more than an illustration. Among men, those who nurse and rear the royal children, however humble in themselves, are allowed free entrance with their charge and a degree of familiarity which even the highest state ministers dare not assume. Probably our Lord means that in virtue of their charge over his disciples. Again, there's Hebrews 1. The angels have errands to the throne, a welcome there, and a dear familiarity in dealing with his Father, which is in heaven, which on their own matters they could not assume. Appreciated the quote. All right, moving on now. Let's deal with the woes. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. This is a message of woe. In fact, the entire cosmos receives the message of woe. The cosmos, that is the world system, receives a woe proclamation. This cosmos is in trouble. This world is in trouble. And I'm not talking about global warming. <laughs> All right. All the scary tactics that are out there about this world. We were watching Krakatoa last night on the History Channel and and all the dire predictions of what happens if this massive volcano erupts and blankets the globe in a, in, a, in a barrier of ash and dust and dirt. And what happens to the world temperatures and all the other things there. Not worried about any of that. All right. This world is passing away along with it. It's lusts, we're told. Thank you. <laughs> what, a, what a delight. And that's good. This world is at variance with God's absolute standard, and as such, of course, it's subject to God's discipline. That's what we see here. Cosmos receives a woe proclamation for its scandalous nature. Play on words there with scandalizo, and I used Greek character text for scandal, and then added an English O-U-S on the end of the Greek scandal. From scandalizo to cause to stumble. This world will cause you to stumble. This world is not on your side. 
The world, the flesh, and the devil are our three adversaries, and obviously we want to pay attention to those. When we get caught up in the world system, we're distracted from the simplicity of the purity of devotion to Christ. Now, that's part of what he designed. We want to understand that. The perfect plan of God in creating volitional beings. The fact that he designed his plan to include decisions and consequences. He created angels and men, the two moral realms, angels and humanity, volitional beings. And he permits us to exercise that volition contrary to his directive will. He permits it. Now, does it thwart his will? Of course not. Because his foreknowledge and his omniscience are such that he has the entire thing, Alpha and Omega, worked out with total perfection. But the fact that there, are, there is negative volition in the universe means... Stumbling blocks are inevitable. It wouldn't be much of a plan if it had 100% obedience every step of the way. Because rather than create volitional beings, he just creates non-volitional beings, see, at that point. Now we're told God doesn't love that. We're told God does not love compulsion. God loves the cheerful giver, and that's plain matter of Scripture. We have a worldwide woe, but the worldwide woe gets focused. Individuals who are the tools for the cosmos system become individual objects for God the Father's woe proclamation. And this gets personal. In some ways, if it's the whole world under woe, well, okay, we're all in the same boat, the world deals with it, right? But as soon as it gets focused that, yes, the whole cosmos is under the wrath of God, and beyond that, the individual in particular who causes the stumbling block in the cosmos system becomes an object of woe. So we have woe to the cosmos in verse 7, and then we have woe to that one, that individual, that, you know, it says that man, but don't think that if you're a lady, you're off the hook. All right? Woe to that person. Woe to that individual. So all of a sudden, it's not just a general pronouncement upon the world, but an individual focus. And you realize, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> I have just set myself up for God's immediate attention. Don't want to be there. Don't want to be in that position. Right? It's like the poor guy named Will. We don't have any Wills here this morning. You know anybody named Will? They're always firing at him. You know, any movie you look at, they say, fire at will. And, you, and you're thinking, man, what did he do? Everybody's firing at will. Well, imagine now, you're the object. You're the one who sparked this stumbling block. And a child of God, one for whom Christ died, one that's walking in a humble childlike faith, is tripped up because of your activity. Wrath comes into focus, and it's focused on you. All right, this moves us on now to the metaphoric self-amputation. Metaphoric self-amputation, just like the previous passage, is only comparable to an unthinkable alternative. It is only comparable to an unthinkable alternative i.e. the lake of fire, being cast into the eternal fire. You and I 
can't even begin to imagine the lake of fire or us being in the lake of fire. Maybe we can imagine as a concept the lake of fire. But to try to put ourselves there and envision or somehow comprehend a lost estate apart from the redemption in Christ is alien, unthinkable. So we don't view this passage as an or-else passage. We don't view this as a danger that, ooh, we might lose our salvation and get cast into the fire. See, the wrong way to take this idiom and wrong way to take this figure of speech. You probably encountered folks that would approach it that way, though, and say, there, there, see, look at that. You can lose your salvation. No. We're using uh, the language of extreme. We're using the unthinkable alternative and uh, notice the, the linking of the term better here. We have the exercises of better. It would be better, or it is better, for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. So we have the language of better there in verse 8, just like we had it in verse 6, where it would be better to have the heavy millstone hung around your neck. So this this gives us our clue that we're talking about the unthinkable alternative hands feet and eyes are important so point a hands feet and eyes are important but a person can live without them if they had to yeah stopped in fact even considering the day and age in which it was written Contrasting that with modern times in our culture today, I think it then becomes even more vivid. Hands, feet, and eyes are important, but a person can live without them if they had to. And I'm going to relate this over to our stumbling blocks here in a moment, the second part of the point. It may hurt to cut off our stumbling blocks. It's not pleasant to poke out an eye. But that hurt is only comparable to an unthinkable alternative. That hurt is only comparable to an unthinkable alternative. So we read verses 8 and 9. And it's a little bit different in the synoptics. A little bit different in uh, Matthew or Mark. But let's look at it. Um, If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Similarly, verse 9. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Throw it from you. And then the expression, it is better. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fire of hell. Interesting, the phrase enter life is describing what? Describing actually glory. Describing the transition from mortality into, now we have life now. We we entered into life when we accepted Christ as our Savior. We entered into life when he transferred us from the domain of darkness and delivered us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. But we don't truly enter into the reality of that until we are absent from the body and at home with the Lord. See, Hugh Hatley has entered into life. The rest of us are still uh, waiting to get there. Okay, does that make sense? All right. Same thing with, um, let's go beyond the actual metaphor here, though, and consider what we're dealing with. Hands and feet and eyes and all of that. What is it that's causing your brother to trip up? 
What, what activity of yours? See, relate the, we've had the doctrine. Relate this back to what we've studied in, in the liberty uh, sections of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 8 and chapter 9, we're talking about the liberty that we have in Christ, the freedom that we have in Christ. And maybe it comes in the realm of our, uh, the foods we eat or the uh, beverages we drink or the movies we watch or the books we read or the, the places we go, the people we dance with or whatever it is. If uh, I used to work with a man, the movie theaters were absolutely horrible. In his mind, the movie theater was a temple. It was a temple to the adversary. And it didn't matter. Even if you went to watch something rated G, it didn't matter. Because the setting was still a temple of this cosmos, and he would have no part of it. Now, I just use this to illustrate. I don't share in his conviction but it was his conviction based on his faith in Jesus Christ, his understanding of the scriptures, and his desire to live his life to the glory of Jesus Christ. So he would not go to Tinseltown, you know, Cinemark Tinseltown, or the Gateway, uh, whatever that theater out there is called, or Lake Lion Mall, or whatever like that, see. Now, he'd go to Blockbuster and bring a DVD home. But Blockbuster's not a temple. At least not in his mind. Okay, Movie theater was. Movie theater is a temple. So, that was his faith. Now, do I have that? No, I don't, have, I don't share the same conviction. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in that which he approves. So, I can walk into Gateway uh, Theater or whatever and, and, uh, and watch a movie. And my, my conscience isn't defiled. I'm not, I'm not uh, killing myself with guilt over doing something carnal. All right. But now let's use this as the example. Is this something I'm willing to, to toss? Is this something I'm willing to set aside? Is it something I'm willing to not make an issue? See? So that I don't cause a brother to stumble. Am I willing to give up something? Paul said, if, if eating meat causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. And Paul had a faith... You know, he was an apostle, and he had a maturity greater than I'll ever have. Giving up meat? What are you talking about? <laughs> Man, I'd rather chop off a hand or something. Now, think about it, though. You can live without him if you had to. You can live without it. Whatever it is. Whatever the stumbling block issue is. All right. Now... And, you know, think about the ancient world. And you're a carpenter or a laborer or a farmer, whatever you are. You can do it now one-handed. That's less than half the work you can get done. Or without a foot. You know, when physical labor was uh, so responsible for so much of what you accomplished, or only one eye, you know, the deformities, uh, there's a lot we don't relate to because... We're so prosperous and we're so, um, they didn't have the uh, Israelis with Disabilities Act, okay? Or the, you know, the, the Roman Empire with Disability Act kind of thing, right? Their, uh, their facilities were not ADA compliant in their workplace, all right? Or in their towns or different places. I mean, to be disabled in, in this manner, to, to have a hand or foot and these things, it was serious consequences now. 
you know, more so than we think today. Today we got prosthetics, we've got medical uh, technology, we've got uh, facilities that that help that are even architecturally designed to assist in uh, you know mobility impaired situations and different things. You got custom vans and vehicles like. Uh, Joyce Mansell used to have uh, lots of different things available there. All right. Still, it's a serious deal. Point B. Their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. For this, we've got to go over to Mark. Let's leave Matthew. Let's go to Mark. Mark 9. And deal with some dying worms this morning. Their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is a remarkable text criticism exercise. Followed by a notable hermeneutics exercise. And an interesting homiletic exercise. How about that? You can use this text to train men for the ministry. And you can give them their text criticism, give them their hermeneutics, and give them their homiletics. All in one passage. Their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If, if you just want to write that part down for subpoint B, that's fine. Mark 9. Where in the English versification, we have verses 44, 46, and 48. In all likelihood, verses 44 and 46 don't belong there, but we'll, we'll see that here in a moment. We have a text criticism exercise. What is textual criticism? Textual criticism is the examination of the manuscripts in the, in the science and art of reconstructing the original manuscripts in trying to determine. You've got, you've got uh, a whole bunch of manuscripts that read one way. You've got some other manuscripts that read another way. You've got some other manuscripts that read this. And you put them all out there and you compare them and you contrast them and you relate them and you try to figure out, all right, what did the original manuscript say? And how was it miscopied or how was it changed by hand? The scribes uh, copied these things by hand. How did these other ones develop? Assuming that one of them represents the original, what are these variants then? How did they develop? How is it that this verse got repeated three times if it was only repeated once? Or if it was repeated three times, why were two of them removed in later manuscripts or earlier manuscripts, as the case may be? The um, subpoints on this. Verses 44 and 46 are scribal insertions from verse 48. In other words, scribal insertions. A scribe put them in there as he was copying the manuscript. Scribal insertions from verse 48. We have the reference to the unquenchable fire in verse 43. We have the reference to hell in verse 45. And then we have the uh, reference to hell again in verse 47. And on that third time where hell is mentioned, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, legitimately belongs in verse 48. There, are, there is no manuscript dispute over verse 48. But at some point, those words got copied in, after 
the other two references to hell, the unquenchable fire in verse 43, where you have hell, the unquenchable fire in verse 43. Then you have hell in 45 and hell in uh, 47. The Masoretic text keeps them, the majority text, I'm sorry, majority text keeps them. The Nestle aligned United Bible Society text does not. For those of you that follow the, dis the distinctions between New Testament text, MT is the majority text. NA or UBS are, is often uh, called the critical text. The critical text. That itself is a misnomer. They're all critical texts. Even the ones that aren't named critical text are critical text. They just cho choose different criteria. We'll talk about Gehenna here in a moment. Let me pull this up and let you look at it. The reason why we do text criticism exercises is, of course, because they're important. We want to know what the Bible originally said. We do our studies from the original languages, we say. And that's going to be too small for you to read, isn't it? We'll double our default zoom and see if that helps. All right. Did I miss the button? There we go. I'm working without a mouse today. It's got me upset. I left my mouse at home. We'll link this so that our Bibles will all connect. All right. You'll notice on the left, we go from verses 43 to 44, and then down to verse 45. On the right, we go from 43 to 45. The Nestle text does not even include the uh, the verse where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched in the new american standard they're in brackets with a footnote footnote tells you verses 44 and 46 which are identical to 48 are not found in the early manuscripts and so you say okay well which early manuscripts and this is where you can come and you can look at this footnote and find out now Part of there's a there's a group out there that is really um, against the Nestle Aland Greek New Testament. Um, they are against the New American Standard Bible. They're very rabid, fire breathing about their opposition. Uh, they accuse it of being Alexandrian, which they kind of make a pejorative. They accuse it of being uh, you know evil, the Satanic Bible, and all of that. I've been told that because I read the New American Standard, that I'm reading Satan's Bible in church on Sunday morning. So I smile. I say, okay. Thanks for, uh, you know, yeah, what do you really think? Thanks for letting me know your, your feelings on this and, and all the rest. Um, oftentimes that crowd will also go the extra step and say King James is the God-breathed inspired word of God that the uh, 1611 translators were moved by the Holy Ghost to preserve for us the, uh, the uh, word of God to the English-speaking world. Well, all right. 
Some of the other things they argue when they attack the Nestle text, they, they attack the King James, or they attack the New American Standard, they say, oh, well, you're taking verses out of the Bible. You're hiding things. You're taking things out you don't like. Okay? And no, we're simply trying to recreate the manuscripts that we believe were authentic, were legitimately there. We're not trying to hide uh, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. We are listing it there in verse 48 where it belongs. We're just simply saying it doesn't belong in verse 44 and verse 46, as well as verse 48. We're not, uh, we're not minimizing uh, anything or hiding anything. And same thing in the Greek text. You'll notice it's not in the text itself, but it is in the footnote. They're not hiding the words. They have the, the words right there for you. And they show you the manuscripts where they're found. And uh, for this, you have to kind of read the code and read and understand what the abbreviations are. The A is Codex Alexandrinus. All right. Family 13 is a family of, of manuscripts, of minuscule manuscripts that are very interesting. They tend to be Alexandrian in their scope. This M signal here is um, right here. This, is, this stands for the majority text, or this stands for the majority Byzantine text uh, family. So the majority text prefers to have verse 44, verse 46 repeated from verse 48, as well as the Latin, early, the pre-Vulgate Latin manuscripts, as well as the Syriac. Okay? That's the evidence for including these verses all three times and not just once. The evidence for omitting verses 44 and 46, in other words, only using the phrase once, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, is in this list of manuscripts where it says text. And you've got the long list of witnesses there, including Codex Sinaiticus. That's what that Aleph is about. Codex Vaticanus, that's the capital B. The other witnesses there, C, L, W, Delta. Um, Family One, which is a uh, collection of uh, minuscule manuscripts. Um, most often we find Family One in agreement with Family Thirteen. And the fact that here we have a distinction is, uh, is pretty remarkable. Um, the Coptic and the Syriac right there are uh, other interest because beyond the fact that we have Greek translations, manuscripts that are copied from Greek to Greek to Greek to Greek to Greek, that right there is a long chain of evidence. But when they got translated into other languages, such as Coptic and Syriac and Latin and German and other uh, Gothic, when they got translated in these other languages, become early witnesses and testimonies as well. Some of those translations are older than the manuscripts we're working with. So it becomes a testimony of itself. Anyway, that's the uh, text criticism exercise that you have to do, and you have to make a decision. Is it, uh, is it likely that these were uh, not original and that they were inserted by a scribe, or is it more likely that they were original and they were deleted by a scribe? Which way did it happen? Was there a scribe copying manuscript somewhere that said, uh, you know, it needs to be here and just put it in there? Or a scribe copying manuscripts that said, you know, three of these in a row is really a bit much. Let's go ahead and take the first two of them out and we'll, we'll just put the third one in. See, I believe Metzger makes a quote here. These words, which are lacking in important early witnesses, including the ones that you see there, were added by copyists from verse 48, and they give this an A rating. 
an A rating is the most confident, the most secure, the most, uh, you know, B is a little bit less secure and C is flip a coin. <laughs> All right. Those are the ratings that the United Bible Society gives. And uh, for this text, they give it an A rating. They have no doubt in their minds that verses 44 and 46 are scribal insertions. So there's our text criticism exercise. Majority text keeps them. The critical text, Nestle, Elon, UBS text does not. Now, Gehenna. What is Gehenna? Gehenna is perhaps the most vivid description of the eternal fire. We're going to spend some time, in fact, it might even take the rest of our hour here, talking about Gehenna. Gehenna, and I'll let you write these texts down, and then I'll get back to our Bible. Gehenna is perhaps the most vivid description of the eternal fire, and it goes all the way back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 7.31, Jeremiah 19, verses 5 and 6, Jeremiah 32.35, contemporary references in 2 Kings 23.10, as well as Isaiah 66:24. Gehenna. Neat word study. Neat word study. Gehenna was a physical place. It was a valley where they burned their trash. But it was a valley that became a center of idolatry, became a place of great evil and wickedness, child sacrifices took place in this valley. And so not only was it a place of refuse, a place of filth, a place, an unclean place uh, of, of burning fire for destruction, but it was also associated with wickedness and defilement and uh, becomes an earthly picture of what the eternal fire is going to be like. It may actually be the most vivid description of it. All right, we'll look at those scriptures here in a moment. Let me show you what we're dealing with in the text. This is really where uh, I could use a mouse. <laughs> All right. Uh, Gehenna's right here. Get my underliner out. Gehenna. G-E-E-N-N-A-N. Gehenna. That's the accusative ending with the new on the end of it. But it's not a Greek word. It's coming from the Aramaic. And we'll show you that here in a moment. Let me just bring up a dictionary to show you Gehenna. Gehenna. Feminine noun. Gehenna. Why is hell feminine? Careful. <laughs> all right. We're all married men. None of us are going to say. All right. Gehenna. Now, strictly speaking, it's not uh, Greek at all. It is a transliteration, Greicized, from the Aramaic, from Gay Hinnom, the land of Hinnom. It's referenced in the Old Testament under Gay Hinnom. It's referenced in, uh, in the Targum, the Jewish Targums, uh, as a combined word, Gay Hinnom. All right. The. Uh, References go back to Joshua chapter 15, Joshua 18, 2 Chronicles 28, some different passages here. According to later Jewish popular belief, see, this is what happens. This valley that had been so associated with 
idolatry and had been preached against by the Lord in Jeremiah and Isaiah. We're going to look at those texts here in a moment. It then developed a lot of um, flavor. It developed a lot of uh, superstition on the part of the, the Jewish traditions, the rabbis, the commentators, and so forth. According to later Jewish popular belief, God's final judgment was to take place there. In the Gospels, it is the place of punishment in the next life, and so it's translated hell. We, we want to be careful, though. We don't separate. We, Hades, the Greek Hades, is the main word for hell. Hades refers to the underworld, the place of the dead, kind of the equivalent of the Hebrew Sheol. There's another term that refers to the lake of fire itself. We want to be clear and distinct in our terminology. Gehenna is a place of this nasty burning, and you'll see that in the uh, Jeremiah passage here in a moment. Let's see, I thought there was one more thing I was going to highlight out here, but references in Herodotus, Menander, the Sibylline Oracles. Quite a vivid uh, text tradition for Gehenna. All right, well, let's look at the scriptures. Start with Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. Remember, Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. Jeremiah was the one who was in Jerusalem as the city fell. God had already delivered Daniel and Ezekiel. He'd taken the captives captive. He'd already preserved a remnant in Babylon. The ones left behind were the ones that were slated to die and suffer. All right? And Jeremiah was the prophet on hand to witness all of that. Deliver the great I told you so messages that uh, he didn't have take any pleasure in delivering. All right, Jeremiah 7.31. Context. Let's back it up to verse 27. You shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. Now, all these words actually back way up to verse 21. And even uh, earlier than that, verse 16, he tells Jeremiah, quit praying for these people. Right? In verse 16, he says, As for you, do not pray for this people. and Do not lift up cry or prayer for them. Do not intercede with me, for I do not hear you. <laughs> That's pretty bad. But God himself says, stop praying. And then uh, continues to pour out anger and wrath and all of that. Verse, so verse 27, you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer you. In other words, be faithful, preach the word. They don't want to hear it, and they won't hear it. You shall say to them, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God or accept correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. Uh, verse 29, cut off your hair and cast it away. And take up a lamentation on the bare heights, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. He has rejected and forsaken. Same language, by the way, when he said, I shall never leave you nor forsake you. Verse 30, for the sons of Judah have done that which is evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house, which is called by my name, to defile it. They turned the temple into a place for idols. They have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom. So here is Gehinnom right here, where Gehenna comes from. And what do they do there with these altars, with these high places in this valley? To burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, 
which I did not command, and it did not come into my mind. So here is our introduction to Gehenna in this passage of wrath right here. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of the slaughter, for they will bury in Topheth, because there is no other place. All right, back to chapter 19 then. Jeremiah 19. Go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnom, verse 2, which is by the entrance of the Potsherd Gate. Proclaim there the words that I tell you. And say, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I'm about to bring a calamity upon this place, at which the ears of everyone that hears of it will tingle, because they have forsaken me and have made this an alien place and have burned sacrifices in it to other gods that neither they nor their forefathers nor the kings of Judah had ever known, and because they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings, to Baal, a thing which I never commanded or spoke of, nor did it ever enter my mind. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place will no longer be called Topheth or the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, but rather the Valley of Slaughter. Last reference in Jeremiah comes to chapter 32, verse 35. detestable things. They put their detestable things in the house which is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal that are in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech, which I had not commanded them, nor had it entered my mind. See, Molech worship is alive and well today. Molech worship is alive and well today. The butchering of infants, the butchering of babies. Sometimes it's called by different names. But the demons are still the same. And even if, the, if uh, people aren't actually laying them on an altar and, and slitting their throats with knives or burning them in a fire, how many are actually sacrificing their children on the altar of materialism or career advancement? They're neglecting their marriages, neglecting their children. Anyway. Different applications of it there. Of course, the whole abortion industry is often associated with Moloch. Can't get pregnant. That's inconvenient. Right? It'll impact my lifestyle if I'm saddled down with a baby. All right. Moloch worship. It's a me-first attitude. Children are expendable. Nope. God said, I never commanded that. Never entered my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. So three times the prophet Jeremiah preaches against it. So does the prophet Isaiah. Let's take 2 Kings next, though. 2 Kings 23.10. 2 Kings is the contemporary written account. Some people even propose Jeremiah to be the author of First and Second Kings. And uh, <coughs> I think it's interesting. Can't prove it one way or the other. Can't prove it. Can't disprove it. I think it's, uh, there's a lot to say. For that uh, tradition. Uh, 
And uh, this uh, not only describes the same thing that the Lord's messages here describe, but it specifically highlights <coughs> highlights the king involved. And uh, the good things that Josiah did, he did a lot of things that were right. He took away the Asherah, he took away the vessels, uh, did away with the idolatrous priests, did away with their priesthood and all these other things. Uh, however, there were some things he did not do. And we're told in, um, oh, no, he did away with this too. That's right, he did away with this too. I almost mis misread this. So he does away with this. Uh, verse 8, he brought all the priests from the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where priests had burned incense from Geba to Beersheba. He broke down the high places of the gates, which were at the entrances of the gates of Joshua. Verse 9, Nevertheless, the priests of the high places did not go up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread amongst their brothers. He also defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire for Molech. So he's doing away with all this. Good King Josiah. Okay, the last reference then is Isaiah 66, 24. And here we get into... the um, eschatology a little bit. In chapter 65 and 66, we're looking ahead to the new heavens, the new earth, the glories of what God will bring about in the kingdom, why it's so important that they humble themselves and repent, all of the uh, reason why we want to uh, be prepared for the return, for the coming king and for the reign of Zion. That's what we're dealing with in chapter 65 and 66. At the end of this chapter, as the book comes to a close, verse 22, or verse 20, they shall bring all your brethren from the nations. See. Okay, it backs up to verse 18, but without reading the whole thing. Um, just understand this is an eschatological application. That uh, I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. I wonder if, if uh, other things are getting reversed. The flood's getting reversed. The fall's getting reversed. Other things getting reversed in different stages. When does Babel get reversed? Does God ever allow for one language then? Will that be in the fullness of time? Will that be in the millennium? Okay. We all get to learn Hebrew. All right. So to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come to see my glory. And uh, I will set a sign among them, will send survivors from them to the nations, all these different regions, Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshach, Rosh, Tubal, and Javan, to the distant coastlands that have never, neither heard my fame nor seen my glory. They will declare my glory among the nations. Then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and litters, on mules and on camels, to my holy mountain, Jerusalem. Says the Lord, just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, I will also take some of them for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. Positive volition Gentiles from all these distant regions, and God's going to turn them into priests and Levites. Not all of them, but some of them. For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring as your name and your name will endure and it shall be from new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. Then 
They will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. All right, so we've got this vivid description. I believe this is millennial, not not uh, fullness of time in its application. Part of the horrors of the uh, tribulation, uh, or of the early part of the millennium, are going to actually be disposing of the bodies after Armageddon. And the months that are required to burn the weapons, to burn the bodies, and to do the cleanup required following Armageddon. All right. Next, we're going to deal one week from today. I was going to ask, are we, I was asked, are we going to have class next week? It's the day after Christmas. Well, yeah. It's the day after Christmas, but... I just can't justify canceling a Life of Christ class the day after Christmas. It just doesn't seem right. It is a Life of Christ class after all. I mean, maybe... Anyway, I just found that kind of amusing. We will have class next week and the following week. I like the holiday weeks, not uh, because I don't think you guys need a break or anything, but because there's a lot of folks that they'll be joining us next week and the week after because they're off of work or whatever else might be going on. We can actually increase increase our class time. So we've got the 90 and 9 to deal with. Some good shepherding application there. Corporate discipline, sometimes thought of as church discipline. The 70 times 7, how many times do i got to forgive this knucklehead? And then um, how do I express gratitude when I've been forgiven so much? How do I express gratitude? How do I live a life consistent with the forgiveness I've received? In the parable that Christ teaches there, verses 23 through 35, the, the parable of the unjust slave. All right. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word, for our time together this morning. We thank you for your faithfulness in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.